This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We have to admit we're operating a bit under the gun today. Ms. McMillan has had to make a trip up to the Beaver State of Oregon. Some family matters uh, carried our producer north. He has now returned, and we are having to, out of necessity, hastily throw together a program. But you know what? <laughs> this isn't really anything all that new. I should note of late that in going through uh, some stored materials, which was set aside in some cases 10, 12 years ago for this radio program, well, a lot of this treasure trove needs to get uh, recycled or maybe cycled since it wasn't used the first time in the weeks to come. We'll see what we can do. Anyway, let's start this program as we like to do with... On this date in history, our date today is the 20th of August. And we would note that it was on August 20th in 1741 that the Danish explorer Vitus J. Bering and his crew became the first Europeans to reach Alaska. The Bering Strait is, of course, named after him. On August 20th in 1940, Leon Trotsky, the Russian revolutionary, the man who basically kept the Soviet Union alive when it was under attack from an expeditionary force of all sorts of other nations, including the United States, although we weren't taught much about this in our history classes, now were we? At any rate, Trotsky, who fell afoul of his political rival, Joseph Stalin, was living in Mexico City and on this date was attacked by a hired assassin, after which he died the following day. Trotsky, real name Lev Bronstein, is not a guy who, you know, gets much press these days. But he was, to be sure, a fascinating historical figure and worthy of some commentary. Perhaps we'll make some, but not today. Except to note that the only time I think he ever came up in casual conversation was once when I was in Mexico, ironically the country in which he met his end. And while down in Cabo San Lucas, I was... Hanging out, I guess you'd say, having chanced upon a couple of labor organizers from San Diego. While down at the beach, I think they were reading, I don't know, the collected works of Joseph Stalin. And they quite frankly admitted they were unrepentant Stalinists. Yes, not socialists, not communists, not Marxists, Stalinists. And they admitted as labor organizers in San Diego, their mission was to first create a union and then to radicalize it. When I sort of casually mentioned what Stalin had done to Trotsky, well, not to mention millions of others, which we'll have more to say about later in the program, they both launched into denunciation. Oh, Trotsky! Oh, 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 my God! And I have to confess, there was a moment when we were scrambling over the cliffs when I did have an opportunity to reach over and shove one of them into the ocean. Let history record that I did not do so. Aww. Whether I acted properly or not, well, you'll have to make the call, dear listener. Speaking of communists, it was on August 20th in 1968 when approximately 200,000 of what were called Warsaw Pact troops, the Warsaw Pact was then the Eastern Bloc's answer to NATO, but 200,000 troops and 5,000 tanks invaded Czechoslovakia to crush the Prague Spring, a brief period of liberalization in the communist country. Czechoslovakians protested the invasion with public demonstrations and other nonviolent tactics, but they, of course, were no match for Soviet tanks. And on a happier note, it was on August 20th in 1977 that the U.S. spacecraft Voyager 2 was launched on the first mission to explore the outer planets on a grand tour before leaving the solar system. 
And yes, I believe Voyager 2 was launched a few days before Voyager 1. Voyager 1 was slated to take a direct trip out to Jupiter and Saturn, but Voyager 2, thanks to some astute person down at NASA, who realized that a once-in-174-year opportunity was upon the space agency, aimed itself to visit Jupiter, Saturn, and then Uranus and Neptune. Hence the phrase, Grand Tour. Voyagers 1 and 2 are currently out at the edge of the solar system, although the debate seems to go on as to whether they've actually left the solar system proper or not. I don't know what's going on with that. Ed Stone, the mission director, is still alive. Perhaps we should get him on the program and have him explain it, although I'm not sure even he can. And one final item, since we're talking about uh, communism, it was on August 20th in 1991 that the Republic of Estonia declared its immediate and full independence from the Soviet Union. In the Mikhail Gorbachev era of glasnost and perestroika, they let the Estonians get away with it. It remains an independent nation to this day, although its large Russian majority makes a lot of people wonder if Estonia might be the next Ukraine. All right, you know, listening to some old programs, which I've done lately, I was sort of struck by the fact that in the early days, we didn't have this standard boilerplate, which we followed for the past many years of quote of the day, quip of the day, good, bad, the ugly, etc. And you know, there are some advantages to doing it that way, but I like our current way, so we're going to stick with it. So it is that our quote of the day comes from the late, great San Francisco Chronicle columnist Herb Cain, who noted, I tend to live in the past because most of my life is there. Speaking of the past, our quip comes from Mick Jagger, who once said, There's no future in rock and roll, only recycled past. Well, judging by most of what the Stones have put out for the past three decades, I have to agree, Mick. I mean, you guys must have one fresh hit in you, don't you? All right, our joke of the day, and for this we have to thank Jeannie Keltner's posting on her Facebook page, is as follows. A banker, a worker, and an immigrant are sitting at a table with 20 cookies. The banker takes 19 cookies, then warns the worker, Watch out, the immigrant's going to take your cookie away. Someone wrote to say that when he tells the joke, it's a Republican, a worker, and an immigrant. It works both ways. Our stat of the day, and this one does send a bit of a cold chill up my spine, is that right now, though there are roughly 7.3 billion people on Earth, roughly three times the population when this correspondent was born, the United Nations predicts that by 2050, the global population will swell by a third more to 9.7 billion. About half of this surge, it is said, will be concentrated in just nine countries. India, Nigeria, Pakistan, Congo, Ethiopia, Tanzania, the United States, United States, Indonesia, and Uganda. Sad, isn't it, that China has actually got its population under control and had to do some desperate measures, but, my God, it had to do them. According to the UN, fueling these population growth rates are high fertility rates in, in a handful of developing countries, primarily in Africa, as well as an increase in life expectancy throughout the world. Over the next few decades, the number of people older than 80 is expected to triple. And this one gets me. Nigeria will overtake the U.S. to become the third most populous country in the world by 2022. Nigeria, by the way, is about the size of Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Louisiana combined, more or less. If you've ever read a description of what it's like to live in Nigeria or seen pictures, you wonder how this could possibly happen.
Our anecdote of the day is as follows. A Texas man who was charged with assaulting his girlfriend's ex got ordered by a judge to marry the woman or face jail time. Jostin Bundy, who admitted to punching the other man to defend his girlfriend, was asked by Judge Randall Rogers, is she worth it? He then told Bundy to marry her or go to jail. The couple is reportedly now engaged. You know, the, tech, the next time Texas uh, makes noise about leaving the United States of America, can we, like, take steps to make sure that it actually happens? All right, our good news for the day is that there is a promising new vaccine that may stop Ebola. Yes, they now have an experimental vaccine. It's showing some real promise of providing effective protection against Ebola, at least according to the results of a clinical trial in Guinea, which suggests that the vaccine is safe and 100% effective. Dr. Marie Paul Keeney, the co-leader of the trial, told NPR.com, it's a game changer. The vaccine is manufactured by Merck, contains a live but harmless pathogen called vesicular stomatitis virus that usually infects livestock. Researchers replace one of the genes with another from the Zaire species of Ebola, a disguise that prompts the immune system to produce antibodies against Ebola, and used an unconventional ring vaccination approach to test the vaccine. The strategy entails immunizing close friends, relatives, and neighbors of people infected with Ebola, which is spread through direct contact with body fluids to create a protective ring around them and contain the virus. We hope this pans out. Although we do have unconfirmed reports that uh, both Jenny McCarthy and Jim Carrey have uh, warned people that um, this new Ebola vaccine could be dangerous to children. I'm kidding, but this does allow us to segue into the fine Sacramento News and Review article on uh, the anti-vaxxers, which somewhat to my astonishment have been gaining traction steadily over the past several years. The article by Jill Stewart titled Immune to the Truth is worth a quote or two. It notes correctly that measles, which killed 500 people and hospitalized 48,000 annually, before development of the measles vaccine in 1963, was eradicated in the United States in the year 2000. Now, however, outbreaks set off by foreign travelers, but often spread by non-vaccinated Americans, are back. The biggest outbreak of the past decade hit Disneyland last December and spread to about 150 people in the U.S. and Mexico, plus dozens in Canada, fueling a political upheaval in Sacramento that led Governor Jerry Brown to sign on June 30th Senate Bill 277, sponsored by Senator Richard Pan. Senator Pan, a pediatrician, has taken a lot of heat for trying to get this bill through, which which he managed to do, with some help from Senator Ben Allen of Santa Monica. But uh, their reward has been vilification. Noted the piece under SB 277, parents must vaccinate their children before the kids start school or otherwise get a medical exemption from a licensed physician. Parents who refuse must homeschool or set up public independent studies programs. But some have noted this may be pouring gasoline on the flames of the controversy. The piece notes that since Disneyland, the ranks of the anti-vaxxers have only ballooned, with compatriots as unlikely as anti-physician chiropractors, the Nation of Islam, conservative Republicans, long-term breastfeeders, mothers of children with autism and other disorders, and get-government-off-our-backs libertarians. There's an emerging possible rump coalition that's totally new, people who all distrust government, yet who've hardly ever interacted. 
but now they've intersected on vaccinations, according to a GOP political consultant. Anyway, pretty darn good piece. I recommend that you check it out, dear listener. One interesting sidelight to the article is that uh, some of this may arise from the incredible sense of, uh, well, helicopter parents being overprotective. There's this idea that if they allow their kids to get a shot and something bad happens, the onus will be on them. We want to know, too, we already missed Cosmo Garvin at the News and Review. We don't think he would have written something like, Props to the Sacramento Police Department for getting serious about bias-free policing and forced diversity. Props? The last three times I've asked people that use the phrase props or mad props, what the hell they were talking about, they couldn't define the term. You will not hear it used on Radio Parallax. Yes, Mr. Millen, I know that it means kudos. So if we need to use the term kudos, we shall. All right, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for not taking it anymore after an Orlando TV news anchor walked off the set when his co-host introduced a story about one of the Kardashians. Said John Brown, I can't take any more Kardashian stories on this show. It's a non-story. Get up out of your chairs, open the window, stick your head out and yell and say, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. It was, on the other hand, a bad week last week for going with the lowest fare after a Latvian budget airline flight was grounded in Oslo when passengers reported that the crew seemed a little too giddy. And, in fact, the entire crew, including both pilots, failed sobriety tests. And it was an ugly week last week for doing what the boss wants, with the news that Defense Secretary Ashton Carter is defying President Obama's wish to release a number of Guantanamo detainees. According to an unnamed Senate aide, Carter is stalling because he doesn't feel comfortable putting his name on the line for some of the detainees. Carter's hesitancy is a huge source of frustration for President Obama, who has long promised to close the prison. Chris, we want to give kudos to Rob Rogers of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, whose two-panel cartoon appeared in the B last week. The first panel shows the U.S. Embassy in Cuba with two people, possibly of the Republican sort, talking, one of them saying, isn't it shocking to see the American flag flying in Cuba where so many human rights are violated? Of course, the second panel shows Gitmo, with the guy responding, well, not really. Yeah, have you noticed how back in 2008, when Obama talked about closing Gitmo, there was a huge surge of popular support for that idea? Well, it's still open for business, in no small part due to Republican obstructionism. And I have noticed that no one's even talking about it in the ramp up to election 2016. Well, the GOP's all worked up over their idiocy on immigration and abortion and, I don't know, teaching evolution in schools. I don't know. But it is curious, isn't it, that one of the government agencies that they all seem to be united in their hatred of is the EPA, since Obama's now trying to use EPA mandates to rein in methane and CO2 emissions. And it's about time. You know, since Al Gore was one of the few politicians in the U.S. and maybe world who's been on top of this topic since he was in the Senate and was vice president in the 90s. 
It, it may well be that the theft of the federal election by Jeb Bush and Catherine Harris and others, you know, might be the turning point that sinks the whole world. Of course, when I say that, that opinion, like all those heard in this program, does not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. Nevertheless, I think it still may be true, sadly. But anyway, the EPA, at least somebody finally stepping up to address the issue of methane and CO2 and avoiding this nonsense about cap and trade, which as far as I can see is a giant scam. But uh, down in the Southwest, they're, they're pretty hot at the EPA over its ham-fisted actions in a uh, gold mine, which has caused massive pollution of uh, the Animus River. Apparently, workers accidentally breached a dam of debris, which prompted water laced with arsenic, lead, and other pollutants to pour into the Animus. Senator Cory Gardner, Republican of Colorado, is blasting the EPA for incompetence, saying if a private company was behind this bill, all hell be breaking loose. Well, wait a minute. A private company was behind this bill. They impounded all the toxic compounds to begin with and then walked away with their gold money, didn't they? According to a piece in the New York Times by Julie Turkowitz, reprinted in The Bee, well, I quoted Governor John Hickenlooper of Colorado saying, Our initial economy was largely driven by mining. Saying that in an interview at the state capitol, a building with the gold leaf dome. But it left us a sad legacy of these sites that are going to need significant resources to fix. Damage that no one understood or realized that this is going to be an issue. Well, yeah, the, e- the EPA, a bad group. Let's get rid of them because they make mistakes. But uh, how are we going to clean up all these toxic waste sites? Who is going to do this? Note that in its heyday, the Gold King Mine produced about 350,000 ounces of high-grade gold, according to its current owner, and its products landed on the fingers of well-known women in New York City and in the pockets of everyday Americans and in the vaults of banks around the world. After the Gold King shut down, it passed from company to company with owners who each believed it would one day be economically feasible to reopen the mine and extract more of the gold. In 1999, Steve Fearn, an engineer, acquired the mine. In 2005, when Fearn could no longer pay the mortgage, a businessman named Todd Hennis bought it at foreclosure for $290,000. Hennis said the financial deal makes him immune to federal laws that would typically hold him accountable for the wastewater spilling from his mine. Meanwhile, let's look at what The Economist had to say about uh, this, this fiasco. They note the accident is awful and awfully timed. The EPA, invented during Richard Nixon's presidency, has become the federal agency conservatives most dislike, the aggressor in the war on coal. It does note that the EPA won the most recent round when it reissued regulations limiting carbon dioxide emissions from power stations on August 3rd. Meanwhile, back in Colorado, Steve Fern, according to the piece in the Times, was gazing out at the flow from the mine, still running at 600 gallons a minute, and explained that a coalition of mine owners, environmental groups, government entities, and residents who had been working together since 1994, and explained that a coalition of mine owners, environmental groups, government entities, and residents had been working together since 1994 to clean up the mines. But even after the spill, he said he favors a voluntary collaboration rather than a federal takeover. It's our community, he said. We'd like to have a bit of say in how it's done. Yes, as yellow toxic sludge moves south into New Mexico. All right, and final item for our segment is an obituary item, which I'm going to, I think, go with now rather than in our third segment, as is customary, because it sort of plays off some of the comments I've been making throughout this whole segment. The man we are noting for our obituary is Robert Conquest. 
Noted The Economist, the intellectual history of the West in the 20th century was dominated by arguments over totalitarianism, its causes, effects, and possible justification. They note that even after flag-waving support of the Soviet Union has dwindled to irrelevance, although I must say I did see in Red Square a gathering of a few hardcore Bolshevik flag-waving communists. Magazine notes the Conviction that communism was a good idea, poorly executed, persisted in certain quarters. Others still thought the communist threat overstated or drew equivalences between crimes committed in the name of socialism and those of Western anti-communism. The position that communism was a monstrously evil system responsible for unprecedented atrocities was held by only a minor, was held by only a minority of scholars. Robert Conquest who died on August 3rd, was one of the most eloquent and implacable members of that camp. To the chagrin of his opponents, he turned out to be right. Robert Conquest's landmark 1968 book, The Great Terror, was the first detailed account of the true horror of Joseph Stalin's rule. The British historian estimated that up to 20 million people had perished in famines, Soviet labor camps, and mass executions in the 1930s, a figure that many left-leaning Westerners dismissed as an exaggeration. But when the Cold War ended and Russia's communist archives were opened, his estimates proved more accurate than those of his critics. Yet he refused to gloat. When he published an updated version of his magnum opus, he subtitled it A Reassessment. Not as his friend, the writer Kingsley Amos, proposed, I told you so, you effing fools. He was born in England to a wealthy American father and a British mother. Robert Conquest was a member of Britain's Communist Party during his student days at Oxford. But he soon quit when he realized that other party members were, quote, very dull and rather stupid, unquote. Conquest served as an intelligence agent behind enemy lines in Bulgaria during World War II and went on to produce anti-communist propaganda for the British Foreign Office work that inspired his writing on the Soviet Union. Conquest's first three books on Russia were solid rather than exciting, said the Daily Telegraph. But the Great Terror, his fourth, established his reputation as a big league historian. Conquest's expertise in the Soviet Union was the subject of nearly 20 books and led him to be recruited as an advisor by Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. Yes, noted The Economist, he did not start out as a scourge of the left. He fought on the Republican side in the Spanish Civil War. It was a crack shot, although he apparently fought for only one day and fired a single round. I was amused by the economists noting that while at Oxford, he was disgusted by a party hack of the Communist Party who claimed that Britain's bourgeois leaders could never declare war on Hitler. This is undoubtedly at a time when Stalin and Hitler were buddies. He more or less became a, a historian by accident. Like George Orwell, he worked in a branch of the Foreign Office, which analyzed the Kremlin's power and practice. He shared the results confidentially with journalists. Those papers turned into books. He evidently won a prize for the best long poem written during the Second World War. The Economist notes that his greatest work was, of course, chronicling chapters of the Soviet nightmare, which had been cloaked first in secrecy and then in shame. First-hand counts did exist of the man-made famine in Ukraine, the Great Terror of the late 30s, and the destruction of nations in the maw of Stalinism. What Conquest did was turn those fragments of available information into comprehensive histories. He wrote more calmly about totalitarianism than about the accomplices and deniers of its crimes. Stalin was a thug, Lenin a maniac. But why did so many sophisticated, educated Westerners ignore or excuse what was happening? They note that when the Soviet archives opened, his meticulous work was utterly 
vindicated. And he summarized Soviet communism in a much-quoted limerick. There was a great Marxist called Lenin, who did two or three million men in. That's a lot to have done in, but where he did one in, that grand Marxist Stalin did ten in. Conquest felt that the kind of people who overlooked such trifles were also willing to scrub their minds on other issues. I must say, as a personal note, back in the 1970s when I was a young man attending UCD as an undergraduate, I too was very impressed by those on the left who excused what was going on in Cambodia and, one might add, the Soviet Union and China because of their political bias. They were much more concerned about the terrible things going on in South Africa. And terrible things were going on in South Africa, but nothing compared to the bloodbath in Cambodia under Pol Pot. And citing that, I'm in no way diminishing the crimes of our own federal government under Johnson and later Nixon, which studiously lied to the American public year after year after year about the atrocities we were committing in Southeast Asia. But all that said, Cambodia might have been the greatest massacre of its own citizens on a percentage basis of any nation in the last hundred years. I mean, there may be some contenders in Africa, but I think Cambodia lost something like 20% of its population. Two mad dog communist Pol Pot's regime. Yet a lot of people on the left ignored it then, and they probably still ignore it now. And I'm still haunted by the conversation of a few months ago, which I reported on this program, of speaking with a guy who, who I otherwise respect a great deal, telling me that I was the only person he'd met who had nasty things to say about the Soviet Union. From all he'd read and heard, things were great. I don't know, is this the kind of people Conquest looked at as uh, the sort of folks who could scrub their minds of other issues if they can overlook such trifles as what happened under Stalin? Maybe. I don't know. We must take a short break, but I hate to go out in such a downer. So let's lighten the mood slightly with um, some ridiculous political business that is a little less bloodthirsty. Apparently Trevor Noah, the South African comedian of mixed race background, raised in Soweto, is going to take over from Jon Stewart as host of The Daily Show next month. Noah has described himself as a connoisseur of racism, hailing from a country where bigotry is export quality. Having been to South Africa a couple times, I would note that, uh, you know, there's a chance that his humor is going to transfer over to America quite well. The two countries are more alike in many ways than you might think. The Economist noted that sometimes South African news is absurd enough to need little embellishment, knowing that few stand-up jokes are funnier than the government's own explanation for why it used taxpayers' money to build a swimming pool for President Jacob Zuma's private home, which is that it's a handy reservoir in case the house catches on fire. Let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We'll be back. Stick around. You've been living like a little girl. In the middle of your little world. And you mind your time, and you know you're living so mind. Yes, you mind your time. 